Revelation chapter 3 tonight. Revelation chapter 3. Just going to jump into it. We are moving like at a snail's pace through this book so far, right? Uh, but it's good. We're on our fifth church in this study. We are taking our time uh, with these churches, and as we get to chapter 4, we'll, we'll speed up just a little bit more. But I really wanted to focus on these churches because, man, there's so much information, so much insight, application that we see from each of these churches. So let me go ahead and jump right into it and read the verses, and then we'll kind of give an intro about Sardis, the fifth church on the list out of the seven churches in Revelation that John is writing to. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and seven stars, I know thy works. Again, this is kind of what Jesus is saying to all of these churches. I know what is going on. It speaks of his omniscience and um, really the fact that Jesus Christ knows everything, uh, good and bad. That thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Now, this letter specifically, as well as some of the other letters to the churches, are are very poignant um, with the the significance of what this church is going through and experiencing. And, And as we've already talked about, there are so many applications that we can make on an individual's life. Uh, with within the church and within our Christianity. But verse number three, Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. This is very similar to all the letters. Hey, remember what you need to remember. Hold on to what you need to hold on to, which is God's words, the gospel, and repent of those sins that are uh, besetting you. If thou, or if therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee. Now this is, this is again, Uh, Very poignant. I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. You know, typically if someone robs your house, they don't give you a warning. All right, I'll be there about 1038, so be prepared. You know, Jesus is saying that, hey, just like a thief would come in the night and there's no warning, I'm going to come upon you with judgment if you don't correct some of these things. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So again, quick review. We have talked about Ephesus, which really you can identify as the careless church. We've talked about Smyrna. Smyrna, it's the crushed church. They were persecuted. We talked about Pergamos, which was the compromising church. They allowed compromise to come in and beset them. They had compromised their doctrines and core beliefs uh, of the gospel. Uh, We talked about Thyatira. Uh, That was a very poignant lesson last week, which was the corrupt church. A lot of corruption had come within that church. Um, And now we're transitioning into Sardis. And really what Sardis is known for is they are known as a dead church. A dead church. And this is significant because there are a lot of churches out there in existence today that are really Sardis-type churches that are, if not dead, they are dying. Now I'm going to ask a couple questions before we really jump into it tonight, but first of all, now I'm going to point this one to Ryan because you know he's in the medical field and he knows a couple things. I didn't say a lot of things, but he knows a couple things. So, Ryan... What is the purpose of an autopsy? Got to figure out why they died. Got to figure out why they died. Yeah. Autopsies are important. 
And really what, what we discover here as we study this letter is that really the, an autopsy has been given. <laughs> Jesus Christ has called this church out that, you know, even verse number one, you know, you have a name which, you know, that, that thou livest. You know, you have the appearance that you're alive, but in reality, you're dead. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, you know, they're like a walking zombie, right? Um, but let me ask this question. What are, what are some signs that you see in an individual and in someone that is dying? What are some signs that you might see in an individual that is dying? Weight loss. Weight loss? Okay, what else? What? Weakness. What? Lack of excitement. What else? Marcus? Lethargic. Okay. Lose their color. What else? What are some signs that you see in an individual that is dying? Amanda, no, just a fly. Organ shut down. Organ shut down. Okay. They can't talk well. What about people who just can't talk well in general? Are they just dying? Michael, you're raising your hand on that. Like, yes, that's me, or no? You have something? Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry, man, you're dying. Um, what? What are? With that being said, what do you think some signs are of a dying church? We're going to talk about some of this tonight, but you know, what do you think some signs are of a dying church? People quit coming. People quit coming. It's very good. No joy. No growth. Yeah. No outreach. No outreach. Very good. What else? What are some signs of a dying church? No life, just there, kind of going through the motions, really. What else? Anything else? What are some signs of a dying church? Spiritual weight loss. Spiritual weight loss. Now, some of us want a physical weight loss, but... <laughs> what? I wasn't necessarily talking to you, but if you want to take it as that, you know. It's like Aaron said, what all fat is the Lord's, right? <laughs> Amen. So... <laughs> He's got you covered. <laughs> I'm going off subjects. <laughs> All right, we're getting off. All right, <laughs> Jackson. People stop coming. Very good. What else? What are some signs of a dying church? Anything else? Fighting. A lot of fighting going on. A lot of bickering. Uh, really, a lot of disunity. Michael. No empathy. Yeah. No empathy. No compassion. What else? Mia. Not talking to each other. Yeah, it's kind of a sign of a fighting thing. Anything else? Quit paying their ties. Yeah, man, there's there's a lot of things we could talk about. Tiffany? Not willing to go out of their comfort zone. Here's the reality, though, when a church specifically is dying, the people that are within it don't always know. The people that are in that church don't always know that they're dying. Um, you know, when I first came here to Eagle Drive, it's coming up on five years, uh, end of November, 1st of December, um, you know, the people in this church, if I were to ask them, are you a dying church? I, I'd, I'd say the majority would say, no, we're not a dying church. We're still here, so we are not dying. But in reality, this was a dying church. Brother Allen, am I right? <laughs> yes, David, am I right? Yeah, it was, it was a dying church. But you don't necessarily see that when you're on the inside. And I think the Lord kind of brought me in as an outsider to kind of help, not necessarily perform an autopsy, but hey, this church, if it wants to have life again, then there are some things that need to take place. And really, that's what we're going to see tonight with Sardis, that the autopsy has been performed, and Jesus is basically, hey, 
you have the appearance of life, but in reality, you're dead. Now, this is not just for a church. I want you to take what we're going to say tonight for the individual Christian, because again, this is a very poignant lesson, as many of them have been. That gnat is up here now. I don't think I got it. But Tom Rainer, he wrote a book entitled The Autopsy of a Deceased Church. It's a great book. I encourage many people to read it. It's a very small book, but it's a very encouraging book, and uh, there's a lot of insight in it. Um, but in the book, I want you to listen to this. Rainer identifies several fatal causes that put once alive and vibrant churches in the grave. They include, but are not limited to, these things. First of all, treating the past as the hero. Second, refusing to adapt to the needs of the present community. Third, moving the focus of the budget inward. I'm going to get that thing. I know. Allowing the Great Commission to become the Great Omission. What he's talking about, the Great Commission, is going out into the world, telling people about Jesus Christ, but you know what? We don't need to do that. So it's the omission of not actually doing it. Another thing is this. Letting the church become preference-driven out of selfishness and personal agendas. So it's all about our preferences. And when the pastor doesn't meet my preference, then I don't like it. Another thing, seeing the tenure of pastors decreasing, meaning pastors don't necessarily stay there a long time because sometimes pastors don't stay in the church a long time because maybe God is calling them out. But sometimes God's saying, you know what, this church is dead. They don't want to to be alive, so we're going to move them on. Um, Failing to have regular corporate prayer, praying together as a community of believers, having no clear purpose or vision, um, obsessing over the facilities. You know, uh, you know, we've, we've spent a lot of time and effort into our facilities over the years, but it's, some churches are just, their sole focus is making sure our facilities are great. But who cares if your facilities are great if you're not reaching out? And that's a, that's a sign, that's a symptom of a dying church. And I've heard it said, and I think I have it in your notes, but many a church begins with a man, reaches with a mission, Becomes a movement, but ends up a monument or in the mortuary. And it's a polite way of saying that many churches begin with life, but end in death. But the reality is, it doesn't have to be that way. Just because a church you know, starts out in existence doesn't mean it has to die. It will die when some of those things that I just mentioned happen. When really, you know, and, and some of the things that you mentioned, you know, when a church stops reaching out in the community when they're always fighting with each other, when it's all about their preferences and there's a lot of disunity. Uh, it's very easy to get, again, as I've talked about before, apathetic, complacent, uh, lethargic in our Christian life. And those are signs that lead to a dying church. You know, Tom Rainer has done many studies on this and many autopsies of churches. And in reality, there's really, just in America... And I can't necessarily give numbers, but you know per, the percentage of churches that he's been in, and he's been in, I mean, hundreds and thousands of churches. I mean, he, he puts it at something like 10% of the churches that he's been in would he even consider a church that's alive. He said the majority of churches, I think 40-50% of the churches that he has been in and experienced have at least signs of death. Signs that they are dying. And every church would want to say that, man, we are alive. And I hope that's true of our church. But in reality, there are a lot of signs of death. And I've seen many Christians who are, in a sense, zombies. They are walking dead because they're going through the motions. But God has not called us to go through the motions of the Christian life. To just kind of show up and do what we do and then just go our way. And that's why I I preach hard sometimes, you know. 
Uh, sometimes, you know, I get, you know, get passionate about, you know, what I'm preaching and teaching, not because it's just, you know, I just want to step on your toes, but I want what's best for this congregation. I want what's best for, for myself in my Christian life, and I want us to move forward and not go backwards. I don't want us to, to get in the grave too early, so to speak. And a couple things about Sardis before we kind of jump into those, those five similarities is that, you know, Sardis was, was a wealthy city located about 50 miles east of Smyrna and 30 miles southeast of Thyatira. It was one of the great and wealthy cities in Asia Minor, but it was also one of the oldest cities. It was the capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydia where uh, King Croesus reigned. Because of its inaccessible plateau where the city was originally built, it was an ideal military city. The Acropolis of Sardis rose straight up about 1,500 feet and had only one narrow, winding, steep road of entry. It was an impregnable fortress. Five main roads converged into the river valley, making the city a busy center of traffic and trade. Sardis was a city exceedingly fabled for its past wealth and past splendor, but it had deteriorated greatly. And here's the thing about Sardis. Its greatness lay in the past. And I want to just reference that very quickly because there are a lot of churches that, again, have been great, but in the past. They're always talking about what they did, what they used to do, who they used to have in, and, and what they used to... Man, we, you know, we've, we've had thousands of people saved. Man, that, praise God. Well, we haven't had a person saved in 10 years. That's a sign of, of a dying church. You know, man, we've, we've given millions of dollars to mission. Man, praise God for that. But we've given like 5,000 this year. I mean, that's a sign of a dying church. And there's a lot of other signs that we can talk about. But Sardis was devoted to the worship of the mother goddess Cybele, as many of these other churches were in the cities. One commentator said this about Sardis, No city of Asia at that period showed such a melancholy contrast between past splendor and present decay. They were so much about the past and the greatness of the past that they forgot to realize that you still have to take care of the present. You know, those of us that have houses would understand this. Imagine you built your dream home. And at the time, when you build it, everything was just amazing. But over the years, you just kind of let it deteriorate. And then 20 years later, it's, it's, it's nothing like it used to be. And you're still living in that. Oh, it's not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. But it's nothing like it used to be. And you're always talking about how great it was, especially when it was built. But it's not that great now. And most people probably wouldn't even want to live in it because it's deteriorated so much. And that's kind of what was happening here uh, in Sardis and especially within the church. Now, Thyatira, remember, as I said last week, was known as a Jezebel church. You don't want to be known for that. But Sardis was known for being a dead church. That's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? A church should not be known as a dead church. A church is a living, breathing organism, but Sardis was not. Here's the reality about Sardis. They were merely playing church. And how many Christians, don't raise your hand, but how many Christians merely play Christian? You play the part. You know what you're supposed to do. You know what you're supposed to say. You know how you're supposed to act. You know, you go through the motions. Again, it appeared to be alive but just because it had a reputation of life doesn't mean there was life there now. The appearance of the Sardis church is that of a beautifully, here's one, one commentary said, it's that of a beautifully adorned corpse in a funeral home. <laughs> but the Lord is not deceived. So you can dress up a corpse all you want, right, Brother Mike? But that corpse is still dead. It doesn't matter how great they look. 
You can dress up a church as much as you want, but if there are signs of death, that church is dead. And here's, here's again, another commentary said this about Sardis. He said, they were the perfect model, listen to this, of inoffensive Christianity. They were the perfect model of inoffensive Christianity, which means, you know what? We don't want to rock the boat. You know, I don't want to offend anyone. And again, we've talked about that in in depth many times. You know, I don't like to necessarily offend people. But as I've said, the gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive. It offends people because it calls out our sin. But when you never want to, you know, do those things, that's really the model of an inoffensive Christian that, you know what? You know, I'm just kind of, kind of, I want to be PC. I want to be politically correct here. It's not about that. The church as a whole will not die because it's His church, but individual churches can, and sadly they do. And what we have here in these six verses is a prescription given by the great physician to help ward off death and turn a once vibrant, thriving church that has become dead into a vibrant, thriving church again. Jesus is trying to offer some prescriptions to renew them and restore them. But here's the thing. You know, renewal and restoration don't happen by programs. They happen through Jesus Christ. And that's one thing that I've realized since I came here, you know, almost four and a half years ago. We've been in, the, we've been in a you know, four and a half year revitalization. And it has nothing to do with what I've done. It has everything to do with Jesus Christ. Because it's His church. And revitalization, renewal, happens because of Him, not because of a program that I implement. So let's jump into it. The characteristics of Christ, verse number 1. He has the seven spirits of God and seven stars, if you're taking notes in there, uh, in your notes. Has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. You see, Christ is simply described as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. This is referencing the complete or perfect Holy Spirit. And you can draw allusion to this in Isaiah chapter 11 and Zechariah chapter 4. And again, what this does, as it's talking about in uh, verse number 1, it's talking about God's omniscience. The fact that He knows everything. It's talking about His wisdom, and it's talking about that God or Jesus, He is the only one that has life-giving power. He is the only one that can give life and take life. You see, what we understand and find out is that Jesus Christ, He sees, He knows, He cares. And He has the power to breathe new life, resurrecting life into a dead church. Because that resurrecting life was breathed in by God the Father into His Son, Jesus Christ, when He was in the grave. And He can do the same thing with His church. But then, we're switching gears a little bit because it doesn't necessarily follow the five things that we've done in the past. It kind of switches a little bit. Notice what we see next. We see the criticism. Normally, it's that commendation. We don't really see that until a little bit later, but we see the criticism. Verse number one, I know thy works. Again, you have the appearance of being alive, but you're not. You're dead. You are spiritually dead is the criticism here. Did you realize that others can notice when the fire has gone out in your life? Did you notice that? Or did you realize that? You know, again, you might not notice it. Because it, death doesn't often happen fast. Now it can. We all understand that. You know, driving in a car and all of a sudden someone hits you and boom, you can go into eternity like that. But for some people, death happens slowly. For the church, death doesn't happen overnight. 
You know, let, let's say we are a vibrant, thriving church. Tomorrow, we're not going to be a dead church. But in two months, we could be on the road to a dying church. It takes time. You see, here's the truth. We can pretend all we want, but it's obvious where our focus is. And we kind of reference that with Ephesus. They were all about the works, right? All about doing things, doing good things, but what? For the wrong reason. And there's many of us that struggle with that. I I have struggled with that in the past. Doing good things for the wrong reason. You know, there are times that, you know, God gives me insight. And I dare say that I could probably point out people in the church, even tonight, that have the appearance of life, but are really spiritually dead. It's not that I'm some kind of prophet or anything like that, but I think God gives his, his servants some insight sometimes. And the reality is that just like parents, how many parents in the room do we have? Just raise your hand. How many have ever been able to see through the facade of your kid? Right? It's that parental insight. Seven, you got an illustration you want to share? I'm, yes. I heard her talking over there. Let's just pass the mic around, right? Uh, Parents, you understand what I'm saying when I say that. You can see through the facade of your kid. They think they're fooling you, but it doesn't happen very often, right? You know if they're telling the truth, if they're telling a lie. Same thing is true with with the church. You know, again, God gives me that special insight where I can see through the facade of an individual. So how many how many would like it tonight if I just go ahead and just go around the room and call out who's who's alive and who's dead? Anybody would like that tonight? Marcus, all right. So we'll start with Marcus. You are... No, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) I'm not going to do that, but just because you put your church mask on doesn't mean you're fooling anyone. And you may very well fool your pastor, but there's one that you cannot fool. God. You cannot fool Jesus Christ. He is that omniscient uh, Savior that, that sees all and knows all. So whether you fool one person doesn't mean you're going to fool everyone. And there are times where kids, they fool their parents. That's, that's part of it. I think that's, you know, the, the game that we play as, as children sometimes. You know, can I fool my parents? You know, I've got to try harder. I've got to try harder in my deception. But you cannot fool God. Chuck Swindoll said, The church at Sardis was a morgue with a steeple. <laughs> Vance Havner said, She had it all in the show window, but nothing in stock. <laughs> Like you're going, you know, shopping, and all of a sudden you see all this stuff in the show window. All right, I want what's there. Oh, we don't have that. Uh, well, I, I want there. Uh, we don't have that. <laughs> you see, Jesus confronts this church from the very beginning. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are spiritually dead. And again, I'm not pointing it out tonight for individuals, but there are some, probably even tonight, and I, I, I know that, that have the appearance of life but you're spiritually dead. Just let that sink in. I'm not saying it to like scare anybody, like, oh man, he's like got this you know, premonition. No. What, what are we doing in our Christian life? It's not about going through the motions. Again, that's why I preach hard. That's why I teach hard, because I want what's best for us. And again, that's why I'm taking my time on these seven churches specifically because there's so much that we can gain and information that we can see. You know, sometimes we think we are one thing when in reality we're actually something else. You know, we don't know how Sardis got to where they got. 
Bible doesn't necessarily tell us. History doesn't necessarily tell us. But I dare say, here's one reason or one way that they got to this dying church. Compromise. They started compromising things. Key doctrines, key beliefs. And here's how an individual can become a dying Christian instead of a vibrant Christian. You start compromising. You start compromising your beliefs. You start compromising your standards. Start compromising as a parent with some of the things of how you raise your children. Look, raising children is not an easy thing. It's not supposed to be an easy thing. And as, a, as I said a couple weeks ago, sometimes parent, you have to do the hard thing. You have to be the parent. That's why God puts you in that position. You have to be the parent, and your kids aren't always going to understand. We've had to do things with Nate and Noah, and they don't understand. Nate doesn't always understand some of the things that we, we have done or are or, or doing. And I, I mean, perfect example, even tonight, some things that happened earlier. They're not going to understand it, but it's because we, we believe we know what's best for him. And we have to understand that God knows what's best for us, right? And we have to understand that and accept that. You know, maybe this church had compromised in order to blend in with the world. And there are a lot of Christians, and I don't want to labor this point, but there are a lot of Christians that have blended in with the world because they don't want to stand out. I don't want to stand out. I want to be different. I don't want to be labeled as, you know, some you know, freak or whatever. But we're looking just like the world. In our dress and in our attitudes and our action. <laughs> I'm not saying we all have to have, you know, the, you know, the certain haircut or whatever. You can be unique. That, that's okay. You know, be who God made you to be. But so many times in trying to stand out, we're actually just blending in. We're so focused on what the world expects instead of what Christ expects. Now we get to the correction, verse 2 and 3. Let's continue on. Be watchful or wake up. So here's, here's what it says here. Wake up, strengthen what remains, remember and repent. Wake up, strengthen what remains, remember and repent. Look, Jesus loves His church and that's why He has to correct it. Not only can Jesus redeem His church, but He also can resurrect it and rescue it. Again, the autopsy has been performed. Sardis is dead. But because it's still his church, Jesus' church, there's always hope. There's always hope for restoration and revitalization. But we must act quickly. Imagine going to the doctor tomorrow and they said, All right, I'm sad to say, but you're dying. You're dying. You've got this much time to live unless you follow this prescription. Now, most of us would probably be like, hey, what's the prescription? I'm going to do it, right? Whatever you, whatever you tell me to do, I'll get a second and third opinion. I mean, if they're all saying the same thing, okay, I'm going to do that. But why is it that what Jesus gives us a prescription in His Word, we just cast it off? Don't answer that, but do you have an answer for it? Why do we do that? He gives us a prescription in His Word every time we open it, and yet, uh, whatever. Again, it'd be like going to the doctor, do these steps, and you will get better. You will not die. I mean, they can't obviously say that with all surety, but if you do this, you will get better. Jesus says, if you do this, you will get better. And there's five commands that we see quickly. First of all, this, be alert. 
That's what this verse says. Be watchful, or to help us understand it better, wake up. Now, let me ask a very difficult question. Very difficult question. What does it mean to wake up? Anybody? What? Open your eyes. <laughs> what? To not be asleep. Man, smart kid. Good job. See? It's good. To not be asleep, to wake up, to open your eyes. So that's what Jesus is saying here. Does anyone not understand that? Do I need to labor this point? No. Wake up, be alert. Be alert in your Christian life. Historically, the city of Sardis had fallen twice due to military slothfulness, which means they were just lazy. And this call to wake up or be alert is imperative. It's relating to a continuous action. It's very easy to think about this in in relation to, to sleep. It's very easy when that alarm goes off to just hit the snooze, right? And I am great at that. Zip it. Many of us are very good at that. We are very good at just hitting the snooze. But many of us are very good at hitting the snooze in our Christian life. When Jesus said, hey, wake up, be alert. To be alert is you're not asleep anymore. I mean, that's it. To be awake, you are not asleep anymore. You're not laying down. And as a Christian, we are not called to sleep. We are not called to lay down on the job. You know, when an organism is alive, there's growth, there's repair, there's reproduction, there's power. But if these elements are lacking in a church, then the church is either dying or already dead. Listen to this. Yesterday's victories are of little value for today's battles. Let me say that again. Yesterday's victories are of little value for today's battles. Every day there is a new battle because the enemy is there. He's real. There's a new threat. So just because you've experienced success in the past doesn't mean you're going to experience success today if you're not alert in the military. Just because you defeated the enemy one time, Brother Mark, doesn't mean you're going to defeat him the second time? No. Especially if you... It's not that big of a deal. We already defeated them. They're, I mean, they're, it's easy. It's very easy to get slothful. I remember um, the Israelites with um, what, AI. Was it AI? Ah, we got this. Well, they didn't have it. One, they didn't have God on their side on that. They went in kind of thinking, oh, we don't need that many men, so let's just have a couple thousand. It's all good. Command number one, be alert. Command number two, strengthen what remains. When people stop operating on the basis of God's Word and from the power of the Spirit, spiritual decline always happens. It's the law of spiritual degeneration. Like every Sunday, every Wednesday. But I want you to understand this. Listen to this. The quantity of their works was definitely deficient. But the thing most lacking was the quality of their works. They had grown content with a mediocre, halfway comfortable and convenient Christianity. And I dare say there's many, even today, tonight, that have grown content with a halfway, mediocre, comfortable, convenient Christianity. Their faith wasn't radical. In fact, it was invisible. But God hasn't called us to have invisible faith. He's called us to have radical faith. So let's get personal. How many are good at starting something only to not complete it? Many of us. And there's many of us in, in, in here in our Christian life that have started good habits, but we haven't finished. All right, I'm going I'm to start reading my Bible every day. 
Did it for a week, and then all of a sudden we slack off. I'm going to start this devotion with, you know, with my spouse or someone else or my kids, and we start, we start strong and only to fall off. In, in the city of Sardis, there was a temple there to, to Sibyl, but it was an unfinished temple. <laughs> it was incomplete. And so was this church. They were incomplete in what Christ saved them to be. And what this does, and this strengthening the things which remain, it carries a sense of urgency. Do it now before it's too late. Command number three, quickly. Remember what you have received and heard. Remember what you have received and heard. Like Ephesus, Jesus calls them to remember. What are they to remember? It's the same thing that we today in 2020 need to constantly remember. It's this, the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ must be the central focus of our life. And that's why this next series, I'm excited about it. Above all, allowing the gospel to shape our lives. But the gospel should be our driving force in our life. So remember what you have received and heard. Command number four, quickly, keep it. The phrase hold fast means to keep it. The truth is that the gospel is a very precious treasure that should never be taken for granted. We must never let it slip away. Listen, the fact is, we never drift toward anything worthwhile. We never slide into truth. We can slide into error. You slide into theological liberalism or moral compromise. You never drift anywhere worth going. Never. You have to do it with purpose. And I said it last week, and it's worth repeating, but the gospel does not need to be added to or taken away from. So stay true to the gospel. Guard it, keep it, hold it, never let it go. Command number five, repent. Repent. Remember what you've heard, what we received, and hold fast, and repent. If there are things in your life that are wrong, repent now. Well, I'll wait until next Thursday, and then I'll repent. Why? Why are we waiting? It's not about waiting, it's now. Behold, now is the day of salvation, right? We don't know if we have another breath in this life. That's the truth. So Jesus says, repent. Too many Christians have an inadequate understanding of biblical repentance. Listen to me. I've said this countless times over the past several weeks, but repentance is a change in attitude, which leads in a change in action. And biblical repentance, listen, should be an ongoing companion throughout our Christian life. Understanding that we've never, we haven't fully arrived and there are things that we still struggle with. How many have sins that you struggle with in your life? So what Jesus is saying even to us today, repent of those sins and make them right. Well, it's not that big of a deal. It is a big deal. You know, here's, you know, you can get personal. You know, People think, you know, with, with things that you put in your body. You think about, you know, drinking. Well, I'm not a drunk. Well, you're not going to become a drunk if you don't take the first drink. That's getting too personal, Pastor. I don't know why you're saying that kind of stuff. But it's the same in our inner Christian life. It, it's, it's not that big of a deal. I, I, can have a, I can have a sin every now and then. Why? Because we're trying to be too much like the world. We're compromising. And Jesus is saying... He's not saying, you know what, just do what you want. It, it doesn't matter. You know, it's your life, so just live it how you want. Is that what he's telling us? No. Repent. The things that are wrong in your life, repent. 
And notice the imagery that Christ uses. If they do not repent, listen to this. Read it. Therefore, if they're therefore shall not repent. So if you don't repent, if you don't do what you're supposed to do, I'm going to come on thee as a thief, as a thief in the night. As, you know, a thief comes, you're not going to know what hour they come, what hour they show up. So now this is a striking image and yet a powerful image. Repent now because there is no promise that you will have time later. And it's time Christians wake up of their spiritual apathy and get right with God now. Or judgment may just catch up to you when you're unprepared. No one is prepared for judgment. Okay, I'm prepared for judgment, Lord. Go ahead, bring it on. No, we're not, because we think we have endless days and endless opportunities to get things right. But we don't. So repent. Then we see the commendation to the church. Verse 4. Quickly, thou shalt have few names even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. So there's a few of you that have done right, that have been faithful. They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Quickly in your, in your notes, it's works and undefiled clothes. This is a, this is a picture of spiritual contamination of their, of their Christian witness by accommodating to the current and faddish trends of the pagan culture and its sinful life. Listen to that. What this is saying, it's a picture of spiritual contamination of their Christian witness by accommodating to the current and fattest trends of the pagan culture and sinful life. And Christians are just as guilty of this. There are some who are more concerned with fads and trends and what's on the outside than what's on the inside. And Jesus is pretty clear. Get it right. (laughs) Wake up. That's not what it's about. Who cares what the world sees? Because they're not the ones that's supposed to be defining us anyway. And the majority of Sardis had soiled their garments. Didn't mean they peed their pants. They became defiled by sin. However, in the church at Sardis, and in our churches today, there are still few that have remained faithful to Christ. And the challenge, quickly, verse 5 and 6, you will be clothed in white garments, not blotted out of the book of life. I will confess your name. Here's what it means. To the overcomer, there was a threefold promise given. First, they would be dressed in white. White is the symbol and picture of purity. Those who, um, uh, these are those who Christ sees as worthy. And in Scripture, listen, the robing of a saint is, is ever an expression of the saint's own service and character. It's a description of the white-robed multitude in Revelation. This is to say that faithfulness and integrity of character and of service will have an outward manifestation. In the Roman culture, the dressing in white was very significant. They would have been reminded of in the day in the Roman triumph when true Roman citizens donned a white toga and joined in majestic triumphal processions. Christ reminded the believers there that they would walk in triumph in heaven with Jesus if they remained faithful to Him. Second, He promises never to erase their name from the book of life. Now this is a common misconception with this verse, quickly. People take it to mean that you can lose your salvation. No, you can't. Because the New Testament teaches clearly that once you're saved, you're always saved, right? That's not what this verse is saying. If something is finished, it cannot be undone. This goes against what we believe. But back in these times, listen, there were city rolls where a name was placed on at birth and taken off at death. But here's what Jesus is saying. You don't have to worry about that. If you're saved, if you trusted Jesus as your Savior, your name cannot be removed from the book of life. 
It cannot be blotted out. It cannot be erased. You are His. And third, quickly, He promises to confess those who are clothed in righteousness before His Father. Those in white are His. He knows them by name. He confesses them. There are a lot of people that profess Christ, but profession is, is not enough. Matthew 15, 18 says, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. There are a lot of professing Christians, but their heart is far from God. God. And what we see as we close this, Christ closes His word to the church with the words of the wise in verse number 6. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let me ask this question. Are you merely playing church tonight? Why are you here? Are you going through the motions? If so, why? Get this down. I'm going to close with a, a quick commentary note. Spiritual lethargy and compromise will bring destruction to a church. But Christ is faithful to graciously call those who will hear back to faithfulness and life. Spiritual lethargy and compromise will bring destruction. If you're lethargic in your Christian life, if you're compromising things that you shouldn't compromise, it's going to lead to certain death. And that's not what Christ wants of His church. But that's sadly what many people are on the road to. Chuck Swindoll said this, and I close with this. He said, finally, a dead church lacks evangelistic and missionary zeal turned inward on their own needs, preferences, and comfort. Unhealthy churches give half-hearted attention to, to, the, to the conversion of the lost. That's why we're trying to focus on this who's your one. In contrast, living churches devote time, resources, energy to both local evangelism and worldwide missions. In the message to Sardis, we saw Christ revealed as the life giver because He alone grants spiritual vitality to those with the comatose or dying faith. In light of his urgent alarm to Sardis, all of us who tend towards spiritual stupor must turn from stale religious routine and embrace the abundant life that only Jesus Christ can provide. He extends a sincere invitation to you right now. If you feel the stiffness of the spiritual rigor, mortis, setting in, then take Christ's words to heart and wake up and declare your devotion. And Swindoll is right. It's time, and Jesus is right. It's time to wake up. It's time to quit being lethargic in our Christian life and be who God has called us to be and get on mission for Him. What are we living for? I mean, that, that's personal. What, what are we living for? What, why are we here? That's a question I've asked many times. But why are we here? Why do we come to church? Again, is it just to, to check it off the list? If that's, if that's all, all we're doing, then... We're dying. You know, the world is getting pretty bad. It is. But in reality, it's almost, it's almost like it's... My wife and I were talking about this the other day. I don't think some of us really realize how wicked the world was, especially in this first century. Now, now think about this just, just quickly. The world was so bad at one time, so wicked. We think it's wicked today, and it is. Don't get me wrong. But it was so wicked that God said enough and He wiped them clean. That's pretty wicked. 
I don't think some of us realize it. Oh, it's just a, it's just a story we tell our children, you know, Noah's Ark and stuff like that, and there was a flood and you know killed everyone. It was bad. I mean, it was it was horrible. It was nothing compared to what it is today. And there was a time of great awakening in our country and, and around the world, but really, I think in reality what is happening is we are drifting back towards first century life. Not in a good way. The church was constantly under persecution. Pagan culture was rampant. You know, we think some of these things are new today, but they're not. Pagan culture was rampant, and they were giving themselves over to idols and idolatry. We're doing the same thing today. We're, we're too stuck on, on trends and fads and the latest this or the latest that, instead of about going forward and preaching the gospel to people that need the gospel, that need to hear the truth. So as I close, I challenge you to wake up tonight. I mean, some of you are physically asleep tonight, but wake up spiritually. Spiritually, wake up and do what Christ has called us to do. I don't want our church to die. And it's not just me, but man, I, I have fought hard. And it's, it's been tiring over the past almost five years to keep us away from dying. But it's got to be something personal for us. And we can't just be like, man, we're, we've arrived. You know, we've got X amount of people now. We've got a Christian school now. Everything's good. No. We still got to keep going forward. We still got to keep pressing forward. Now, there's a lot of ideas up here that I haven't shared that would scare some of you. <laughs> Scares me. That's why I don't share them. But we got to keep going forward. We got to keep moving forward because the gospel doesn't slow down. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. But so many times we're on the defensive instead of being on the offensive. Being on the offensive is great. It doesn't matter what, what kind of defense there is. If you have a great offense, a good defense cannot stop that. And especially when Jesus Christ is on your offensive with you. The devil cannot stop it. But we give him too much credit. We give him too much power. So I encourage you to wake up and move from complacency to that vibrant, thriving Christian life that only Jesus Christ can bring.